Las Vegas, famous, fabulous playground of the West. A wide open town that never goes to sleep. Vegas, Vegas, baby, Vegas! You're either in or you're out, right now. My best mates are down to Las Vegas this weekend. I'm told it's incredible. Las Vegas, here we go! Pack your bags and get ready for a different kind of Vegas experience with someone who knows Vegas inside and out. You're listening to Vegas Never Sleeps with Stephen Maggi. Well, if you're a fan of classic rock, and you know I am, and especially if you were born in the East Coast, particularly there, Bruce Springsteen is a rock god. And there's a great book out on him if you like Springsteen, or even if you just like rock and roll, it's really a good book that really covers the life of uh, one of the really greats of the of the business. It's called Springsteen Album by Album, and the author of that book, Ryan White, is with us right now. Now, Ryan, first of all, what a great way to look back at his life through albums. How important were the actual albums to Bruce Springsteen over the years? Oh, I, I think immensely important. I think as you look at the, uh, you know, there, you, you get a lot of talk these days about how we're we're past the, you know, we're, we're kind of post-album. Uh, it's it's back to kind of a singles, a singles type of format as, as bands release new music. Uh, and as you as you reflect on the album era, uh, if that really is true, I think he's got to be one of the you know he's got to be one of the great artists of the album era. Period. I mean, the, the thought that he put into uh, to kind of crafting a message to to building a narrative. One of the reasons it's so fun to do a book like this is because he has cared so so deeply about the narrative that he is he has been presenting as an artist. It's fun to to explore that narrative because you know it's not like one of those those books that you have to discuss in high school English class where you're pretty sure that there's not really a message <laughs> there, that it just, you know, we're all scratching our heads for one and, and you know, trying to trying to be our way through it. You know, he built he, he built these things to, to say something and, and a lot of them still speak very strongly uh today and it's a testament to to the work that he put in over the years and really still puts in. Well, and there was a whole format on this. People don't remember it anymore, but it was called album-oriented rock. And, you know, you think of some of the great albums of all time, like the Beatles with Sgt. Pepper, uh, the Beach Boys with Pet Sounds, those kind of things. And Springsteen certainly had a bunch of them. And you can really... The, what's really interesting about your book is you kind of see the development of him as an artist and you kind of get a feel for his moods and so forth. I mean, and talk about what are some of your favorite albums? What do you think are some of the more iconic albums that uh, he's produced through the years? Yeah, I mean, I, my favorite is probably, uh, and, and I think it's it's his most enduring is "Darkness on the Edge of Town." And um, you know, it, it, this book landed at a weird uh, at a weird time for a perfect time for me. But you know, I'd, I'd been working at a newspaper here in Portland, Oregon for uh, for 16 years, and as what happened, you know, as happens in newspapers uh, these days, when you've been there for 16 years with everything that's going on, sometimes you're asked to leave that newspaper, and. Uh, and so I, I, you know, I joked about how the paragraph factory shut down on me, and uh, <laughs> and there I was. And, and the, uh, the the themes in darkness, the you know the the way that the world will will really kind of, of stomp on you and try and break you break you down. He had had such enormous success with Born to Run at a time that he had to have it. I think that's his most important album mm-hmm. because it meant that there would be other albums. He made the great album that he needed to make that justified all of the the critical hype that he'd had that hadn't turned into commercial success at that point. And then, 
contracts and lawyers and, you know, record companies. Everybody started, you know, trying to get their hands in it and control something that he felt he should have, you know, complete control over, which was his art. And so he went years without being allowed to be in the studio, and they would go out and they would do these, you know, one of the tours was called the Chicken Scratch Tour, where they were just trying to make enough money to keep the organization running until all of the the legal wranglings with his first manager could be sorted out. And so, you know, that, that desperation, the sense that, you know, it can all be taken away from you by, you know, somebody who doesn't have, you know, any of your interests uh, at heart, you know, are at the heart of Darkness on the Edge of Town, and yet you get to the end in the title track, and, you know, there's the line about, you know, I'll be on that hill because I can't stop, I'll be on that hill with everything that I got, and that you've just got to, you know, sometimes shout back out into that void and, and dig your heels in. And I think that's why, you know, even today the songs from Darkness, you know, constantly pop up in the current set and in very important places where he's, you know, he builds his live shows around, you know, there'll be two or three kind of uh, mini arcs that, that, that tell a bit of a story. And, and especially lately they'll do, some, do a lot of screwing around in between. He'll take requests, pull signs from the audience and stuff like that, but the stuff from Darkness connects, you know, is is importantly and as thoroughly as anything that he's ever done, and, uh, you know, I think that's probably, I don't know, I'm sure people would argue, but to me that is uh, inarguably his best album. Well, Ryan, what makes a great rock song to me is when you can remember incredible lines in his uh chronology is just incredible i mean i love the, there are so many great lines where you remember him saying something and that line sticks with you and the, i think this what makes those songs so powerful did you find that as you go through all the great songs that he's done oh yeah absolutely i mean I, the one that always jumps out is you know is a dream alive if it don't come true or is it something worse uh from the river uh you know it's it, it it's funny because you know i've got a four-year-old and obviously if you're doing a uh if you're doing a book called album by album, when you're working on each album, you're that you know that album was on my, the vinyl would be on my record player, the CD would be in my car, you know the iTunes would be dialed up to it. So anywhere I was, that album was kind of on. You know, four-year-olds pick up on things, and uh, you know my four-year-old has a uh, has a bank of Springsteen lyrics she can pull out. There is a. Uh, uh, you know, there's nothing more enjoyable than hearing a uh, a four-year-old girl shout out, "I'm not a boy, no, I'm a man, and I believe in the promised land." Uh, from the back seat, uh, but you can go. You know, I mean, like you said, you can go through it. Uh, you know, I was thinking today about his, uh, you know, his 65th birthday, and you know where where he's at and what that means. And you know, there's that lyric at the end of, uh, you know, "Born to Run." We're going to get to that place where we really want to go, and we'll walk in the sun. And you know, he's gotten there. Yeah. Um, but I, you know, as you, as you move through, especially in adult life, there's just lyric after lyric and song after song that you can just kind of overlay on your situation. Uh, exactly. More so that for me anyways, than any other artist. No, exactly. And I remember at a time there was a song and I don't remember the name of the song, but I remember the line very well where I got Mary pregnant and that was all she wrote. And I think there's a lot of people that knew folks you know, particularly young kids, that that's exactly what happened. And you could feel the agony and the pain and the mistake and so forth uh, right from that song. I think it, sp it speaks to a lot of people. Yeah, I mean, and that's just an aching lyric. It's in the, you know, it's in the river. And it's actually, you know, it's, it's largely true. He wrote that song about his sister who is you know, still married to that guy. And they've got a few more kids and they've, you know, they've kind of slugged out that, uh, you know, that life and, 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 you know, made it, made it work, which, you know, at the heart is what a lot of people do. You know, there's, 
one of the things that I've always loved is that you know he doesn't stare away from he doesn't stare away from the darkness. Uh, it, it's out there. I, I remember I saw him in uh, when he was doing his solo his solo tour in 2005 off of Devils and Dust, and he talked about you know how we all carry you know we all carry a hammer and we all carry a lantern, and you know you can either build something or you can burn it all to the ground, and you know we all probably have times where we can go either direction with it. And, uh, but there's always been, you know, this, this underpinning of, of hope and that you can, you know, that you can, you can make it with a little bit of grit, with a little bit of, uh, you know, a little bit of work. It's not going to be pretty. And, you know, sometimes, uh, sometimes it's not going to work out, but you know, there's a chance. And, uh, I, I think that's what's, what's been really important throughout his entire career. What I find interesting about him is he's a real American. You know, by that I mean that music speaks to America. And I, I always found it fascinating. I remember way back to 1984 when uh, Ronald Reagan was running against Walter Mondale, and each one was kind of each camp was trying to associate that uh, that whole his his songs "Born in the USA" and so forth with their thing. I mean, that's really unusual to get two different sides. You know, and of course Springsteen's pretty political these days and so forth. And you know where he stands, but it seems like everybody can appreciate that music. Yeah, you know, and one of the things that was really interesting to me and, and that I dug into uh, quite a bit as I was writing this book was, you know, I was, I was 10 in 1984, and so, you know, Bruce didn't connect with me the way, you know, at that point when he was just everywhere that, that he did with a lot of others. I was, you know, when you're 10 years old and Weird Al is singing Eat It and David <laughs> Lee Roth is doing karate kicks and stuff, it, it just has more appeal. Bruce... You know, Bruce would show up on MTV, and he would look like the guys at my grandpa's uh, gas station or at, uh, you know, the pub that he would go to uh, on his way home. And uh, so I got into Bruce. Bruce was, like, already, by the time I, I got into my 20s and my early 30s especially, Bruce was already a very weighty cultural figure. I mean, he had, he had the authority of, of history on his side, and he was, he was using it. And so I was interested in kind of connecting the dots between how this kind of scrawny Jersey Shore rat with a bad beard became this granite-jawed avatar for, for Americanness uh, and, and had all of this authority. And, you know, you, you look at when he, you know, kind of when he came of age and what was there, you know, he was, he was the kid sitting in front of the TV when Elvis was on Ed Sullivan, you know. He was, you know, in the band when the Beatles uh, came in 64. There's, you know, he, he's James Brown, the Tammy show in 64. Then he got into like, Hank Williams, you know, his first big hit, uh, Hungry Heart, is, the, the, is musically based on a Four Seasons song. Uh, you know, Flannery O'Connor's influence on, uh, on an album like Nebraska, what Roy Orbison, you know, has meant to him. There's, there's like the very history of... Uh, you know the the beginnings of of American music and and rock and roll are all right there in his you know in his work and then you know you come of age with you know the Vietnam War protests going on with the civil rights uh, movement in full swing and all of that just kind of you know he wasn't he wasn't a very political person in those times but that can't help see it, it it's just there in the it, it's in the air at the time and that can't help but seep into your thinking and the way you, the way you go about your art, and so now you know even up to you know his last, uh, I guess not his last last album because he put out High Hopes in February, but Wrecking Ball. Mm -hmm. uh, before that, he's got samples of old Alan Lomax field recordings, 
in there, um, you know, to, to bring in an element of, of, of struggle that he wanted, wanted in those songs. And, uh, you know, there's Curtis Mayfield's, uh, influence on Land of Hope and Dreams. And so he, he is, he's in some ways like this fantastic jukebox, uh, of American music. He's like, he, he's absorbed it all and, and put it through, you know, put it back out through his own vision. And, and it adds, you know, a sense of history and through history authority uh, to the work that he's done and, and, you know, the way that he has dedicated himself to that work. Well, it seems like rock music is just a great uh, teller of popular culture, what was going on at the time. I mean, you, you have to put him in the same category that you would put a Bob Dylan or some of the Lennon-McCartney stuff and so forth. And that, as you say, you go through, the, and your, your book is perfect for this because you can go through these albums and... You might not have been around at that time, but you kind of get a feel for what was big and important in America at that time. Yeah, yeah. I mean, absolutely. It's you know, it's um, it, it, it's all right there if you take the time to look at it. One of the nice things about the format was, you know, you, you I couldn't go on and on and on about each album. I think the longest chapter is about thirty five hundred words, and so you've really you got to choose your words carefully, and you got to pull out the exact right things, or else you know you miss something that, uh, that, you, that you would not want to miss. And so it was a lot of fun to, uh, to really zero in uh, on things like that. And, you know, when I started kind of, you know, you dig back into the layers, we talk about the, you are talking about the river earlier. Well, you know, he was, you know, Springsteen started that. He was sitting in a hotel room in New York. He was listening to uh, Hank Williams in the, uh, you know, Long Gone Lonesome Blues Hank song where Hank goes down to the river and the river is dry. And, you know, Hank, you know, picked up a lot of his tricks and uh, some early guitar playing lessons from a guy named uh, Rufus Titot, uh, or Tote Payne, who's the son of a former slave who grew up in New Orleans and kind of played on the street corners in the Alabama town where Hank grew up. And uh, he got his nickname from, he had a, uh, he had a flask with a mix of, uh, of uh, bathtub whiskey and, and tea that he carried around. So a uh, teetoad he became, but in all of that just kind of flows through and, 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 and bleeds into the music. And, uh, you know, I don't, in ways that I don't think anybody else has ever, has ever been able to do. Uh, it's certainly not as consistently and for as long a period of time as Bruce. More with Ryan White, author of the definitive book on Bruce Springsteen titled Springsteen album by album in just a moment. This is Vegas Never Sleeps. Hey everybody, this is Sam Riddle and you are listening to Vegas Never Sleeps with Stephen Maggi. Are you tired of high cable TV rates? Sign up for Dish today and get a $500 bonus offer while supplies last. Plus, lock in your price for two years guaranteed. Call All-American Dish, your Dish-authorized retailer now. 800-344-2066. 800-344-2066. That's 800-344-2066. Offers require credit qualification, 24-month commitment, early termination fee, and e-auto pay. Restrictions apply. Call for details. 
truly gentle giants dog food Batman. I'm Burt Ward, Robin from the Batman TV series. I was the caped crusader and now I'm the canine crusader. After rescuing and feeding 15,500 dogs for 23 years, my wife and I created a natural, low-fat, heart-healthy, made-in-America dog food and special feeding and care program designed to help all dogs live amazingly longer, healthier, happier lives. Our dogs are living as long as 27 healthy, active years. Yours can too. That's twice their normal lifespan and triple for some breeds. Would you like your dog to live as long as 27 years and still be active and healthy? Gentle Giants Dog Food is complete nutrition for all dogs and puppies, all ages and sizes, and is different from other dog foods without the greasy coating and high fat content that can shorten your dog's life. Try our Gentle Giants life-enhancing dog food for the longer, healthier, happier life of your dog. Now you can get generic Viagra shipped to your door for about $2 a pill. Get the same impact for less. Call Steel Man Pills now and get the same blue pill for about $2 a pill. Call now for the 50-pill special and save even more. Plus, get a free bonus. 800-870-3609. 800-870-3609. 800-870-3609. That's 800-870-3609. Now, let's return to Vegas Never Sleeps with Stephen Maggi. We are talking with one of America's top music critics, Ryan White, author of Springsteen Album by Album. Now, let's go to the beginning. You know, he what he started out there... A lot of us on the West Coast, and I don't know if you know, you said you worked in Portland at the newspaper. I grew up in California. Man, didn't know that much about him. You hear a little bit. If you listen to the right kind of radio stations, you'd hear some stuff. But, uh, but you talk to people back in New York, and they went crazy over him. How did he get to be kind of that local, uh, just big star? And then where was the big break from there to go on to the big national approach? Yeah, I mean, it was... You know, it's funny, I, I, you, you have these conversations with people now, and, like, you watch him play lead guitar today, because, you know, it's not something that he works on a whole lot and hasn't for a long time. He kind of plays, he, when, he, when he solos, it's almost like he's playing with vice grips, and it works, you know, especially for the music, uh, for the type that he's playing, it works really well. But it's hard to convince anybody who sees him now that he was, he was the hot stuff guitar hero of, of the Jersey Shore growing up. I mean, he could shred. He walked into a... Uh, you know, he walked into this after-hours club in uh, in, in Asbury Park. Uh, well, you know, he he had a small reputation, but it was a place where musicians went after their show to jam all night. And he walked out, and he plugged in, and he just stopped time. And you know, from that night came the core of the uh, of the E Street Band, and uh, and you know, they started playing around. He had he had various incarnations of of, of different bands. You know, the biggest one. You know, at one point he had a had a band with about twelve people in it, which is closer to what he's been playing with last than it was. You know, the original E Street Band when it became, you know, five six guys jumping in a in a van and and, and road dogging it. But that's you know that's what they did once the first record came out. Uh, he got signed as a solo acoustic act and uh, a wolf in sheep's clothes, as he says, because he was a band guy and. Uh, so he immediately he brought the band on for as much as he could, which is why the first album is a bit of a mismatch. Uh, you know, they found Clarence for uh, Clarence Clemens for a couple of songs, then they just blew it out on the second album, and then it was you know, and they were at that point they were a, they had a good regional following. They could 
you know, play a little farther south down the eastern seaboard. They could go up to, to Boston, New York, obviously. Cleveland uh, was good for them. Oddly, Houston was a, uh, was a good town for them. But there were really five or six uh, cities where they were making ends meet and, you know, then taking a shot where they could at some other places. And it was, you know, it was when Born to Run came and he had a lot of critical success. Uh, you know, Mike Appel, who was his manager at the time, who he, he would get into, you know, the lawsuits with later, Appel did an amazing thing, and he managed to get him on the cover of Time and Newsweek on the exact same week, which Steve Van Zant thought was hilarious, and it drove Bruce straight to his hotel room in Los Angeles when he saw the both of them uh, already worried about the hype. But that was the beginning of it, and once you got people out to the show, they came back, uh, and they came back again, and they brought friends, and it grew, and that was how it how it happened. Eventually, Born to Run broke through the hit with all of the the big Phil Spector touches on it and, you know, that kind of, that sense of, of possibility that exists throughout that album uh, that would... Uh, it's a great song. Uh, that would kind of disappear quickly thereafter. It's but, just uh, a great song. But, you know, you Ryan, know, it, was, <laughs> it is really it a is. great song. There's so much going on and you, you can't listen <laughs> to that. If you like rock at all, that's just got, it's got to be like in the top 20. I, you know, it's just, it's just a great song. Oh, that, I mean, that whole album, that Thunder Road, I mean, where it builds the, uh, you know, to that big saxophone break at the end, like the, the instrumental, the instrumental out on uh, Fade Out on Thunder Road is just like, you feel like anything is possible. Uh, you know, for those for those two people as they as they set out on that road at the end, and you know, just Clarence soaring on it, and you know, the Glockenspiel and and everything else that they uh, they put on that thing, and and so that was that was what broke it, and then you know, all the lawsuits and stuff happened, and he had to do it again. It was like he'd had his back to the wall and had to make the perfect record, and he did it, and then suddenly, you know, two and a half years later, he's back into the studio. And he's got to do it again with the same kind of, excuse me, the same sense of, you know, the executioner standing over his career. And he did it again with darkness. And from that point on, it wasn't until after the the river. And he had his first, you know, big top ten hit with, uh, with Hungry Heart, which, you know, to this day I think is probably the happiest sounding song ever about a guy leaving his wife and kids. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, it, it was when he came back from the river that he was – you know, he had the bank account of a rock star, but it was the darkness, uh, the darkness tour that really kind of cemented his legend uh, on a broad scale as a, as a, uh, a, certainly as a live performer. You watch the, uh, you listen to some of the bootlegs from that era, and they were just playing at these breakneck speeds, and and uh, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't punk music, but in spirit, it sounded pretty close to punk music. Uh, at that point, they were just, you know, they were just alive and on fire and, and, you know, one second from possibly having it all fall apart and, uh, you know, they would hold it together and then right back into the next song. Yeah, you know, and in fact, I'm glad you brought that up because I wanted to talk with you about the live shows. A couple things. First of all, the E Street Band, and you kind of touched on that. Big names. I mean, for, for a guy who's such a, an icon himself, his band had some people that have really made names for themselves. And then secondly, I had the same feeling. I saw him in Oakland one time, and he played like a three-hour concert. And it kind of seemed like the bridge between classic rock and then what Nirvana brought in, kind of, uh, you know, from the grunge thing, where it, it was the great stuff that you heard before, but as you say, it had a different feel in person. I mean, the live show now is... Is you know, and last time I saw him was 2012 when he came uh, when he came here through Portland, and it was you know it was a three hour 20 minute set with no uh, 
with no kind of intermission or anything like that. And he's, you know, he's pulling signs from the audience and taking, you know, taking requests. And there was this great moment there in the encore, and they're playing Dancing in the Dark, and he had a, he had a riser out in the middle of the, uh, the arena floor that he'd gone out to once or twice. And uh, they're playing Dancing in the Dark, and a couple of women get themselves up on the riser and start dancing. And uh, Bruce sees it, and he starts laughing. You can hear, you know, I've got the bootleg still, and you can hear him break up laughing just as he's talking about, you know, your little world falling apart. And I was sitting at the side of the stage, and just as he saw it, his security team saw it. And clearly, you know, among all the other reasons that it's a bad idea, for liability's sake, you can't have people up on risers. Right. And so security just took off stone-faced right towards these women to get them down off of the riser. And Bruce sees security take off, too, and he goes... He just yells out to him. He's like, keep dancing. Ignore those guys. Forget them. <laughs> and, uh, I mean, they were his, his employees, but uh, uh, it, it was this fantastic little moment that in a lot of ways summed up, uh, you know, much of, much of what he's done. You know, guys in suits are going to come and try and uh, crack down on you and, and, you know, just keep going. Just keep dancing. And uh, that he can, he can take that spirit still. Uh, you know, he, he takes the stage like, Okay, there's somebody out there that hasn't seen me before, and I don't want them to think that it was all made up. Wow. Um, and as for the band, as you said, there was a uh, yeah, there's a funny story in a in a book Clarence Clemens did a few years ago about how they were in uh, they were in Europe, and Damon Wayans uh, was there doing a movie or comedy or something, and he ran into him, and, and he came to the show. And he looked up and he saw Steve Van Zant and recognized him from The Sopranos. And he looked up and he saw Max Weinberg and he recognized him from uh, uh, Conan O'Brien's show at the time. And he had this idea that Bruce just like picked his band out from various television shows. Like he didn't know anything, any of the history or anything. He just figured Bruce watched TV and then just grabbed the musicians as they uh, as they appeared. Again, great. And Steven Van Zant, what a what a career he has uh, in the acting world. I mean, what a wonderful thing and. Uh, Again, it just it, it's kind of that Springsteen touch, you know, to be involved with somebody who could be such a player in uh, dramatic arts. Yeah, I mean, Steve is, you know, Steve would actually be his own great book. I mean, aside from you know the role that he's played is is uh, as they say, consigliere to uh, to Bruce to you know the Soprano stuff to Lily Hammer, his uh, his uh, drama now is is Netflix uh, drama where he's you know, kind of playing a version of uh, uh, of the Silvio Dante character. Um, you know what he does with his underground his underground garage uh, station on Sirius XM, and you know that type of, of of rock and roll. He's just a passionate, passionate, passionate uh, rock fan and music fan, and it's fun. I had I had access doing this to. Uh, uh, the archives of uh, Peter Ames Carlin, who had done a, a big Bruce bio in 2012, and uh, reading the Steve Van Zant stuff is just tremendous. There was a uh, one of my favorite things. They were arguing over the song "Ain't Got You," uh, which is the the first track on Tunnel of Love, which was the first studio record after Born in the USA. So he has this huge moment where he becomes bigger than you know bigger than a rock star. He's like this cultural you know, icon. He's, he's been in, you know, I don't think he, he put himself into politics, but politics, you know, tried to latch onto him, as you were saying, like both sides, both Mondale and Reagan, everybody was trying to get a piece of him at that point. He was, he was a tabloid star. He was, as he's joked before, he was a sex symbol at 35. Go figure. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and, uh, and he comes back with, you know, this, this very ruminative album, 
about the complexities of, of relationships. But the first song, Ain't Got You, is about material wealth, essentially. It's, you know, I got the fortunes of heaven, diamonds of gold. I got all the bonds, baby, that the banks can hold. Uh, I got houses lined up end to end, and everybody wants to be my friend. And Van Zant hated that song. Van Zant was like, you can't release this. You are the you are the best representative of the working class since Woody Guthrie. You can't put this song out. And Bruce said, well, it's honest. And Van Zant says, I can make an argument to you that honesty is the last thing art should honest is the last thing art should be. And then he just kind of he shrugs and he goes like he's like, but that was another argument that I lost again. <laughs> um, Maybe you should consider a book so, on him, know, Ryan, because because <laughs> this is great. Maybe a book on him. Now, I mean, now, I now that we talk it, now that we talk it through, I might call my agent when we're done here. <laughs> yeah, I'd buy it. I think it's great. You know, and I'm a big fan of Lily Hammer and and of course the Sopranos. Who was one more thing about uh, yeah. about Bruce in terms of we've talked about all these things he accomplished. I think something, and a lot of people don't talk about this, but in my mind. I'm a fan of Christmas music, and Christmas music doesn't lend itself that well to rock and roll and so forth. But I think Bruce did the absolute best version of a Christmas song from the rock world with his Santa Claus coming to town. Do you know anything about that song? I mean, how did that come to be in terms of you know what made him decide to play it? And it's just it's a great uh, it's a great version of that song. Yeah, and you know, I, you know, it, it's one of those things that you know I think found its way into the live set. And uh, they had a good recording of it, and you know somebody was putting out a record, and, and, and it got lent to that. It was you can go back, uh, you know, you can go back into those uh, those shows where it became something, you know, that they were playing around Christmas quite regularly there in the uh, the seventies and stuff. And I think you know it's a great song. It lends itself to you know to to a little bit of stage uh, stagecraft. Certainly, you can have Clarence ho 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 his uh, his way through it as he does. And yeah, I agree with you completely. I, you know, I'm also a fan of of Christmas music, and I love that one. And in fact, you know, I actually think his 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 version of "Merry Christmas, Baby" might be uh, might be better than his version of "Santa Claus is Coming to Town." Um, okay. You know, I've got both of I've got both of those lined up on uh, on various mixes that uh, get played around the house, uh, starting as as soon as I can get away with uh, with playing Christmas music around here. But uh, you know, and both of them are just you know they I, I, like a lot of things they work really well live, and so uh, why not get a version of them out there somewhere? Okay, last question, Ryan. Uh, the future for uh, Bruce, I assume he's gonna. I can't imagine him retiring per se. And also uh, for you, uh, again, this book was great. We already talked about the the one idea for Van Zandt. Have you had another rock? Uh, type of album in mind or have you even given that some thought because i think you know i think people are going to love this yeah i mean i i I hope they'll love it uh it's it's a really uh, on top of you know the words that i'm proud of the the folks that uh put together the photos and the timeline and the discography uh it's a really beautifully packaged book um it, it looks great it uh I, I'm biased, but I think it reads really well. Um, no, and uh, very, very proud of it. I, I, I have not, well, I, it's a lie to say that I, I have not thought about what's next. There's, uh, there's one or two things that are, that are being kicked around and are uh, kind of working through various uh, stages of proposals, but nothing, nothing that exists as any kind of a real thing yet. And so uh, we're just going to kind of keep, you know, much like Bruce, just keep slugging it away. Uh, uh, trying to, you know, I used to be a sports writer, and I'm, so I'm, I'm getting back into that a little bit nowadays. Uh, nowadays too, so that is uh, that is me. But as for Bruce, no, he's uh, he's not going anywhere. He's re- he's releasing more stuff, it seems, than he is uh, 
he has released before. He's figured out how to use the Internet a little. He's been uh, putting up videos of the week on uh, on his website where it seems like he is actually writing a little note about it. And uh, and uh, there's there's rumors of a uh, of a river related box set uh, coming down the coming down the pipe. There's uh, every now and then you'll see a, a snippet of a video or uh, a photo on on his or his wife's Instagram where uh, where it appears mu- new music is being worked on and I think you know at this point new music is always being worked on he's got the studio there at the house and uh, a huge collection of things that uh, are in progress or uh, are brand new and so I would you know I would fully expect that there will be some kind of a you know a new album next year and he just keeps going he uh I think he feels like he's still got a lot to say, and uh, he's passionate about saying it. And there's, you know, there's certainly no reason why he shouldn't. The audience is there, and uh, he's earned the right. Uh, no question about it. And you're going to love this book. It's called Springsteen Album by Album by Ryan White. Ryan, I guess we can get that everywhere. Is there a place on the web we can go to to find a little bit more about this? My website is uh, ryanwwhite.com, and that's got. Uh, you know, that's got all the information on the book and, uh, and anything else anyone might care about. Thanks, Ryan. Really appreciate it today. Perfect. Thank you, Steve. I enjoyed it. Please follow Vegas Never Sleeps on all social media platforms, including Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And thanks for listening today. This is Stephen Manchie reminding you, Vegas Never Sleeps. Oh, Vegas, here we go! Would you like to hear better for as little as 10 cents a day? Now you can with the all-new Audion hearing aids. The average hearing aid lasts about three years. Ours at only $99 a pair means you're paying as little as 10 cents a day to hear better. And to make things even better, we'll give you a 45-day money-back guarantee. Skip the doctor and get hearing aids delivered straight to your door. We've eliminated all the middlemen to offer you a factory direct price of only $99 a pair. Join over 300,000 people just like you who took advantage of our 45-day trial offer. Now you can hear better, too, for just 10 cents a day. Call now and order your $99 pair of Audion hearing aids with a 45-day money-back guarantee. Plus, get free 3- to 5-day shipping. 800-402-7914. 800-402-7914. 800 That's 800-402-7914. When it comes to making plans, you are the best. What about those round trips that you plan in advance, which are perfect on your way there and perfect on your way back? Or those meetings with friends for which you make a group chat three months before so that nobody or anything is missing? Or your daughter's first birthday party? You planned it with such dedication that instead of the first, it felt like our quince's. The same way you plan each detail for those moments. Start planning to protect you and your loved ones from a natural disaster. Sign up for local weather and emergency alerts. Prepare an emergency kit and make a family communications plan. Protecting your family is the best plan you can make. Get started at ready.gov slash plan. Brought to you by FEMA and the Ad Council. Everything is expensive right now. Gas, food, you name it. 
You're spending more, you are making the same or less money. So, what do you do? You rack up credit card debt, that's what you do. It's not your fault, it's the economy. And guess what? If you rack up too much credit card debt like some of us, you can't pay your bills. Then the credit card companies, as nice as they are, start hounding you for money. Then you start your downward spiral. A smart thing for you to do is to call the Zero Debt. They can help you consolidate all your credit card bills into one affordable payment. Millions of people have done it. It works to make you debt-free. Make this free call right now. It costs you nothing to learn more. 800-284-1349. 800-284-1349. 800-284-1349. That's 800-284-1349.